Well, good morning, everybody. It's hard to believe we are in uh, the second week of Advent uh, here as December rolls along. And uh, the theme this year is, uh, has to do with light. And there was light uh, goes along with the cantata theme that's going to be taking place next Sunday evening. Make sure that you don't miss that and uh, join us here uh, for that. But we began uh, talking last week in, in the midst of that uh, about the most wonderful time of the year and how sometimes it's not always uh, that way. Uh, Christmas is a time, uh, December is a time that is complicated, it's complex, it's chaotic, there are things going on at the end of the year, there are things going on inside of family situations, there's things inside of our own lives, we are hectic, uh, busy, trying to cram everything in and make it the perfect Christmas. And so we started there because we recognize that for some of us we pray one of two prayers, it's Lord, would you help me to strip everything away that this could be the perfect, simple, uh, holy, uh, majestic Christmas that you designed for me to have, or um, uh, just forget it, I'll talk to you in January and hopefully just like make it through um, inside of that. But the reality is that you and I are responsible to uh, carve out in the midst of busyness, what are the things that we can set aside, where are the things we can simplify, uh, what are the things that we can do, and then... In addition to that, then how in the middle of the chaos, in the middle of the busy, uh, still uh, cultivate uh, time and space uh, for God in the midst of that. And, and we mentioned that Jesus come and does his best work inside of the not-so-great timing situations, uh, inside of imperfect people, as we all know, that Jesus does his best work inside of chaos, and in fact, that first Christmas was anything but orderly, planned, scripted, it was chaotic, it was complicated, it was messy, it was busy, uh, it was not the way that you would have drawn it up if you had the chance to write the story. And so I hope that you uh, have the perfect Christmas this year, I hope that you have plenty of evenings with uh, fires in the fireplace and warm cookies sitting on the counter and of course everything has zero calories and everybody gets what they want and everybody finds what they're looking for and I hope that you don't end up in any uh, uh, parking lots uh, jammed up or any fender benders or any traffic at all. I hope that you have the perfect Christmas, but in the possible event that everything doesn't go perfectly well and as planned, uh, how do we cultivate Christmas in the midst of the not so great or at least not perfect uh, situations of life? So um, in light of that, I want to let you know, um, and occasionally you'll hear people say this, that when I'm up here, I'm preaching to myself. And that's usually somebody says that before they're about to say something that's maybe going to sting. And so, like, I want you to know this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you, like those kind of statements. But I want you to, to let you know for real that I preach to myself uh, because last week's message was written before I left for vacation. We were away for Thanksgiving week. We came back in last Saturday night, got up last Sunday morning, you know, came, was here. And so the message was prepared long before the chaos or the latest instance of chaos in my life ensued. And so, coming out of church uh, last Sunday, uh, entered into a week that is uh, busy and hectic and chaotic and all those things that I talked about. Uh, Monday was a very full day. Uh, uh, just have a partial update for you. We conducted some interviews last Monday evening for uh, the Director of Worship Ministries, and uh, so that was a full, and it was a, a wonderful time uh, with uh, two very good uh, candidates, and hope to give you some uh, word on that here in the near future. Uh, so Monday was busy, Tuesday was somewhat busy, but then I got home in the evening and Rachel had something 
uh, late at work, and so it was going to be me and the boys, and I was thinking we would, you know, do, do something, and then I got a call from my brother that he had a flat tire. Now, my brother's 11 years older than me. He's in his 50s. He should be able to handle his own flat tires, but uh, uh, so I, th- I throw the three boys in the car, and we call it, you know, it's Operation Save Uncle Russ, and so we, uh, that ended up taking longer and it being much colder out than I thought it was, and so that was the chaos of Tuesday. Uh, Wednesday, I'm here, and I'm, I'm leading a small group, and Rachel's in a small group, and I get a phone call from one of my kids, which is either going to be uh, a mistaken call or a trivial call that I don't need to take while leading a small group, or it's your kid's calling, so you better answer because you never know if it's something else. And it was a call from my oldest who was saying that uh, in the middle of goofing around with some other kids at youth group, I blame it on Jack, by the way, but uh, in the midst of uh, <laughs> messing around at youth group, he... Uh, cut his wrist, and I said, well, how bad is it? He's like, well, it's still bleeding. And I said, do you want me to come down there? He's like, yeah, I guess you probably should. And, and so that's, that's the extent of our conversation. Uh, so I walk downstairs and in the kitchen, and uh, there Caleb is, and he's got a little gash from trying to get the zip tie off of his hand that, uh, you know, I don't have the full story of all that, but so I left small group. I got, left small group early and went to urgent care on Wednesday evening. So that was uh, Wednesday. The rest of the week was filled with a uh, just the other chaos and busyness of life, and uh, had to uh, not had to was um, privileged to stand alongside of the family as they, in a tragic situation, buried their daughter and, and sister. Uh, was late writing the sermon, and so getting the slides to Charlie later than I should have been. Uh, just trying to finish things up and do the things that you want to do, and in the midst of it, still spend time with family and time with friends. Yesterday, we finished decorating at the parsonage, and by finished, it was Mrs. Bill getting to that one point where she was like, okay, that's it. The rest of the things can go back downstairs. And so uh, do not ask her if she decorated the banister like she did last year. That's not a question that you want to ask. Um, <laughs> So, actually, she's way more breezy about that. She'll probably just laugh it off. But there are things that just didn't get done because the time that exists, and you know that. And so when I stand last Sunday and say that sometimes uh, we look for the perfect Christmas and it's not there, but we have to celebrate it in the midst of, I had the responsibility, not just as a pastor or as a dad, but as an individual, as a follower of Jesus, I had the responsibility this week of in the middle of the chaos in the middle of the things that weren't going well, in the middle of the questions or the why or why is this taking longer than it should or more difficult than it should or those kind of situations, I had the responsibility to cultivate what it means to follow Jesus in the midst of that. And I think that's the message of Christmas, not just the miracle of the birth of Christ, but that that miracle comes in the midst of imperfection and precisely for the fact that you and I live inside of imperfection. And so uh, that's where we were, and I want to continue to encourage you to carve out the places where you can carve out the time and the space and those warm and and, and fuzzy moments and watch the movies that you love to watch this time of year and do the things that you know that you want to do this year, but in the times that don't go as scripted, maybe those are the times that he wants to do his best work inside of your life. And so this morning, I want us to jump into and consider a, a very familiar passage Uh, probably most, if not every other year that you celebrate Christmas, you probably hear this passage being read. And I want to spend some time inside of Isaiah uh, chapter 9 this morning. 
Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the, in the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as a people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them and the bar that oppresses their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning with fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Again, a very uh, familiar passage uh, down through the, the history of the church, probably made even more uh, popular by Handel's Messiah. And, you know, sometimes when you read that, you almost, you know, hear it, you know, kind of in, uh, you know, that kind of choral, choral way and, and rate that seems to come across. But before we kind of walk down through that, I just want to take a moment and remind you or just uh, illustrate for us a little bit um, what biblical prophecy means and how we read and how we understand uh, the many different layers of biblical prophecy. You know, sometimes when we think of prophecy, we think it's just a prediction of the future. Like one day the Eagles will win the Super Bowl, and you know what? They did. Or uh, the, the reality that someone's going to come along and says, at such and such a date is going to be the end of the world. And by the way, everyone who has said that thus far has been wrong. But we normally think prophecy is prediction. But it's way more than uh, just a simple prediction of a date and a time or an event that's going to take place. Inside of Scripture, the Old Testament prophets were describing, and God was using them to describe something that was taking place in the current day, in the current setting where they found themselves, but also using uh, that moment to point towards the future. And so, for instance, in Isaiah's day or for Jeremiah, uh, for those individuals that were seeking to be faithful to God right where they were, in the midst of what God was doing or what was happening around them right here and now, God gave them a word to share with his people. And that word spoke to the present age. And so I don't know if you are uh, Daniel or you're Isaiah or uh, you know, you're Jeremiah or you know, any of the minor prophets, if at the moment where you were putting pen to paper, you don't just think you're describing events that are taking place 500 years from now or 1,000 years from now or 3,000 years from now. But it's the word of God that, that's come down, and, and it's what you feel like you need to share about this current reality that we're in. And so the, it, it's almost uh, the imagery that's, that's been expressed as it's like mountain peaks. And so for an in, individual seeking uh, to be, be faithful to God where they are as a leader in the midst of today, what they're writing, God is able to use and, and infuse with knowledge about what's not just going to take place today, but what's going to take place tomorrow and in the future. 
And so for Isaiah, as he writes, he's writing in a time when uh, things in uh, Judah and in particular the nation of Israel aren't going so well. You'll recall that from you know, David and Solomon, then the kingdom divides, and it's the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And so when Isaiah writes, it begins at the time uh, that it's nearing the end of the nation of Israel, that through their rebellion, but also uh, with the rise of, of other nations around them, uh, in about 722 BC, Israel, Israel is invaded and attacked by the Assyrian army, uh, carried off, kind of d- dispersed into the land, and the nation of Israel becomes occupied territory for the next several hundred years. The nation of Judah would go on for about another 150 years before they are invaded by the Babylonians, and the same thing takes place. Seventy years after that, God restores his people and brings them back. And so when you read through biblical history, that's the, the history. You go from God bringing them into the land and establishing you know, the, the kingdom. The kingdom gets divided. A couple hundred years later, the nation of Israel gets invaded. A couple hundred years later, the nation of Judah gets invaded. Seventy years later, they're brought back. Four hundred years later, Jesus comes. That's the basic big picture of biblical history. And so for Isaiah, in the midst of that time, as the Assyrian army is knocking at the door, in fact, he says, for the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, Those two tribes, if you were to look at a map, are on the northeastern side, right up above the Sea of Galilee. They would have been the first to be invaded by Assyria. They probably would have been, therefore, the hardest hit or the the most, uh, you know, destroyed and destructed part of the land of Israel when the Assyrians came in. And so Isaiah is issuing a word of hope that for the people inside of that day, God is faithful. God keeps his promises. One day we will return. God's going to raise up uh, something for us to restore us. God is not done with us yet. And yet also at the same time, he points to not just what's going to happen in 700 B.C. or 650 B.C., but he points towards something that he doesn't even know that's going to happen 700 years later with the birth of Christ. And even inside of that language, something that's going to happen We don't know when in the future, when that ultimate final victory with the second coming of of Jesus and every enemy is defeated and we find ourselves fully inside of the kingdom of God. That becomes important because sometimes we only read the Old Testament and read Jesus into everything, which is wonderful. and, And we see Jesus on every page of scripture if you look for him. But to understand the prophets, you you need to know that they're writing in the here and now and also foreseeing through the Holy Spirit and through what the information that God has given them, what's going to take place with the birth of Jesus and then ultimately with his second coming. If you were Isaiah or if you were people living then, you would want all three of these things to take place at the same time. God's restoration, God to come very personally and intervene and send the Messiah, and have ultimate victory and relief from our enemies. You would want all three of these things. You would expect all three of these things. That's why Jesus becomes so difficult to recognize in the first century because they expected all these things to happen at once. Romans are gone. Messiah comes. Full and ultimate peace and a restored kingdom that is never again shaken or defeated. 
We know now because we, we read and we have the, the hindsight of this to know that what God was doing in the 8th century B.C. was only a, a partial movement in redemptive history towards what happened inside of the 1st century. And that then we ultimately await for his second coming when he comes and we have that final victory. But you don't always see that at the time. The next slide kind of illustrates this, and this uh, is kind of what it would look like if you were, and I don't know if you could see that, that little blue star, and sorry, that's way too close to being a Cowboys reference in the middle of football season, but uh, bear, bear with me. If, you, if that was you hiking that mountain, and you were the little blue star right here on the first cliff, you would potentially see the peak of the third summit or the peak of the second summit, and you would think that you were almost there. So you got to the top of summit number one and you realize there's still more to go. And you reach the top of summit number two and you realize there's still more to go. But if you were standing back, you would see those maybe as one picture and one climb. In 1991, I was in New Mexico on a Boy Scout trip and we were in a Philmont Scout range and uh, we were climbing up uh, on about the sixth day, I think, of our journey. We were going up Baldy Mountain, which is 13,000 feet. And uh, we knew it. We were standing back. You know, you saw how high Baldy was and, and what it would look like to, to climb it. But in the midst of climbing, you think that you should be almost there because we've been walking for a while. And you're looking and, and you see what, what appears to be the summit and you're like, that's it. We're almost there. And you get up to the top and you realize we're not there. We still have more to go. And then you get to the next summit and you realize that wasn't it either. But in the midst of the climb, there's something about the elevation that you don't always see it. I think this is important because for Isaiah, as he writes this, in a very particular context, also points to the fact that uh, what God is doing and, and what God is redeeming and what God is beginning and what God is doing inside of my life, there's a component of that that is both now and not yet. There's a portion, and, and this is not just true for Isaiah, and we could even say that that's an Old Testament thing, but you and I know this well too, that there's a part of what God is doing inside of our lives that there is the now and there's the not yet. And so as you cry out to God, as I cry out to God, and as we pray, and we're praying about these things, and would you be able to intervene that I might have a different relationship with my mom than what I have? Would you do something about this job situation where it doesn't seem like it's sustainable, but I don't know where else to go? I have these health concerns, and we begin to, to pray these prayers, and we think, if God really cares, and if God really knows, and if God really is powerful... Why is it that I don't see the fullness of his hand in my now? Because after all, if I saw the fullness of his hand in my now, I would trust him more and follow him more in the future. And you know and I know that when you walk through life, when you read through scripture, the people that ate of the bread that was multiplied and the feeding of the 5,000, Eventually their bellies were full and eventually they went back home and it's amazing that there wasn't 5,000 more people following Jesus the next day. And as much as the things that concern us seem to drive our prayer life, you and I both know that the depth of your commitment in following Jesus has very little to do with what he did for me has very little to do with the fact that God answered this prayer and this prayer and this prayer, so okay, I'm going to be a faithful follower of Jesus. 
In fact, sometimes it's the opposite. Sometimes as we've uh, pressed into those questions, those undone areas, those not yet things, even in the difficulty of that, it has shaped and sharpened our faith way more than just the one area of answer prayer that we can look back on and say, man, isn't God awesome? I prayed about this and the next day it was taken care of. And I believe that prayer works. I believe that we've been invited to pray. And, and I know that God is intensely interested in your todays and in the, the things that you are praying about today. But I think your character and your walk and your witness is maybe shaped more in the not yet than it does in the now. The areas where we trust that God has a plan that I can't yet see. When we trust in the fact that God's going to provide strength that I don't currently have. When we trust in the fact that God's going to make a way that I can't possibly comprehend. Those are the moments where faith grows. And you've heard me say sometimes, and and I, I apologize if you're going through this right now and you are really struggling, but if God simply was just there to answer every prayer that we offer up, who's really God in that situation? Who's really in control? So Isaiah says inside of this situation, the Assyrians are about to come in. I don't know what the future of the nation of Israel is going to look like. I don't know what the the future of the nation of Judah is going to look like. But I know that God is the one who brought us into this land. And God's the one who's going to restore it. And dark days are eventually going to be flooded with light. To the point that there's no more gloom for those who were once hopeless. There's now hope. To the point that those who are carried off in destruction are one day going to return. Because God keeps his promises. And so it's the now and the not yet. And in the midst of darkness, light comes. And in the midst of the struggle, we begin to wrestle through what it is that God is doing, what God wants to do. And so Advent... uh, is really about the, the coming. That's what the word Advent means, is, is the coming of God into our world. And so it's interesting that as uh, one of the words that's been associated with Advent down through the history of time is waiting. Waiting with expectation. And I used to think that the reason you know, we wait is it's, it's great to have four weeks that we build up anticipation and then we end up celebrating with you know, the hallelujah chorus of he's born and, and he's with us and, and life is good. But I think it it goes much deeper than that, that we wait for his eventual coming, that there are still undone areas in us that may not be finally vindicated until that last day where he wipes away every tear and all pain and crying and mourning and disease and death. That we await the fact that maybe he's doing something tomorrow that is only just beginning today. And it's in that waiting and in that hoping and in that anticipation that we recognize more clearly who he is inside the now and the not yet. Isaiah tells us where our hope is found and where our hope is centered. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, Everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. 
this is who we're waiting for. And even if it's been 50 years ago that you invited Jesus to come into your heart and you know that relationship, we still find ourselves waiting and hoping and anticipating for more of him. It's interesting that Isaiah says he's the wonderful counselor, that he doesn't begin with warrior language because the whole perception inside of that day was that the problem is simply external. It's all about a conquering enemy. It's all about just this political, whether we have freedom and peace or not. And the first communication there is he wants to be the one who is the counselor, who comes alongside, that with tender words and with wise counsel, he's close and he's good and he's wonderful. And the reality then there is if he wants to be the one who is wonderful counselor inside of my life, the first thing that comes up then is I need to be somebody who listens. That if God wants to be close and, and remind me of, of who he is and his presence in the midst of that, that I need to be someone who listens. It says also that he's mighty God. That God himself would step in, not just do something from a distance, but uh, for to us a child is born and a son is given and he shall be called mighty God. A new concept inside of the Old Testament that God would somehow step in, not through an angel, not through a messenger, not through a thunderbolt, but God himself would step in as the mighty God with the power to transform situations. And so if the call to a wonderful counselor is to be somebody who listens, a mighty God then demands the response from his people that we're people who worship, worship at, at the feet of the one who is mighty, the one who is holy, the one who is God. He's also the everlasting father that there is not something, everybody was looking for a temporal Messiah, a Messiah who would come in and solve problem number A inside of the timeline that we want, right off into the sunset and everything is good. But Isaiah reminds us, he's close, he's personal, he is God incarnate, and you know what? He is everlasting. He's not leaving and not just everlasting, but he's one that you could call Father. He's not cold and impersonal and distant, but he is a God who is close and near, and you can relate to him. And in fact, he wants you to be part of his family. So you've not just been redeemed and released and saved by a king, you've been adopted into his family. So that means then that there's an aspect of love and reception and relationship that comes inside of that. And then he's the Prince of Peace. That in the midst of chaos and defeat and war and battle and threatening armies and the discouragement and the disillusionment and all the things that can pop into life, he's the one who brings peace. Peace that transforms challenges and valleys. Not necessarily removes them, but in the midst of them reminds us that there's one who is with us that will never leave and that we can trust. That he's got a plan that even inside of the not yet, there can still be peace. Peace has to be received. And so the, the next slide kind of takes that wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, and then what the response thing is for you and for me. That we listen. 
this gets back to that perfect Christmas thing maybe, but listening takes time and takes space that even in the midst of chaos, you have the ability to hear. That we carve out time to worship. The proper response at Christmas is yes, yes to give and yes to participate, but the proper and only fitting response that's primary is to worship. That we belong to him and to his family, and we know that there's a God who's close in the midst of the challenges of life, and we receive his peace. These, I think, are four of the action words of Christmas. In the midst of host and plan and wrap and buy and run and run and run, and if there's a verb for not sleep, you know, that goes into there also. In the midst of that, I think it's this. We're people who listen and who worship and recognize that the primary identity is that we belong to him and we receive the peace that he wants to bring. So in in the middle of dark days, Isaiah says, there's about to be a flood of light. And it's not going to do away with the dark situation, but it's merely just going to shatter the darkness with the light that comes. It's interesting, you can't celebrate Christmas without lights. The lights that... Uh, take the darkest days of the year, and, and, you know, from a sunset standpoint, and transform them with brilliance and light and hope and festiveness and joy. And I think that follows through with what he wants to bring and do inside of our lives. Are you listening to the one who is the wonderful counselor? Are you worshiping the one who is the mighty God? Do you rest in the relationship and belonging that you have in the one who is the everlasting father? And is there a a peace that passes all understanding that's been received inside of your heart from the one who's the prince of peace? Last week, I asked you a question at the end that said, what's your Bethlehem this year? What's your long journey on a donkey? What's your manger scene? What's, What's the place of chaos and the something inside of your life that you would never have written that way, but yet you find yourself in, because that's where God wants to meet you. Today, I simply want to ask, where's there darkness inside of your life? Do you know the way we use darkness? Sometimes when you're, if I'm in the dark in something, it means I've not been told, I've not been filled in. If something's a shot in the dark, it's, I'm, I'm just going to do the best I can, but I have no clue what the outcome is. Sometimes we talk about the blues and the darkness and and sadness and depression and and it speaks to an an inner emotional reality and spiritual reality. Where are the places this Christmas that you feel like you're walking in the midst of darkness? Could it be that that's the very place that God wants to send light? And maybe it's a now transformation where God wants to step in and do something and solve it and it's going to be wonderful. And maybe it's a not yet, but he still wants to remind you that he's there and he's about to do something that you can't possibly see or comprehend and he's asking you to trust him. Where's the darkness that you're walking through? Difficulty, decisions to make, areas maybe where you feel down. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For to us a child is born and a son is given, and he is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace.
Listen to him. Listen for him. Worship him. Know him personally. And receive the peace that he wants to bring in whatever situation you're walking through right now. Let's pray together. Father, we we thank you for Christmas. We thank you for these days and the excitement of them and and even the hectic pace. There's something about this time of year that's that's just so enlivening inside of who we are. And yet also it it exaggerates and it amplifies all the other things that are going on and that are taking place. And so for some of us, we find ourselves in the dark right now. Maybe we're awaiting news about something. Maybe we are walking through something. Maybe there's been uh, pain or hurt. Maybe there's something on the horizon. Maybe it's just something from our past or areas of grief. Once again, as you did some 2,800 years ago, would you remind us that in dark days you are the God who sends light? That in the midst of gloom, you are the one who breaks forth light? Would you help us this Christmas season to be people who listen for your voice, who worship you, who belong to you, and who receive the peace that you want to bring, regardless of what it is that we're currently going through. Thank you uh, for sending Jesus. Thank you for that moment that on the page of, of history transformed everything. And we also know that you're the God who one day is going to come and fully restore and complete that which you have begun And that one day every battle will be defeated. And every struggle will be gone and every tear will be dried. And we'll find ourselves in your presence for an eternity. But until that day, would you help us to trust you? To walk with you? To recognize that you're a God who is active, even if it's a not yet answer we see inside of our lives. Lord, would you come and meet us over the course of these next couple of weeks as we look forward to your birth and the celebration of who you are. In the name of Jesus the Christ, we pray. Amen.